Critical Care Practitioner Podcast number 27. Welcome to another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jonathan Downham and this is the podcast to inform, debate and discuss all things critical care, wherever in your hospital that might be. Get ready. Hello, 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 and welcome back once more to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. It's nice to have you back with me. Very grateful for you plugging me into your ear again and listening to my ramblings. I hope you're finding it useful. This is a continuation of last week's Critical Care Practitioner podcast, which was with Ken Spearpoint, if you remember. So that's Critical Care Practitioner podcast forward slash 026, um, in which Ken and I talked about crew or crisis resource management. We banged on for a little bit long, so I've actually split it into two, so this is the second half of that. So I'll let you go ahead and listen to it, and then we'll perhaps chat afterwards, and I hope you enjoy it. Does that that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm just kind of thinking out some of the other issues as well. You talk about a situational awareness, you talk about... Um, what was the distributive cognition and distributed situational awareness? Right. So the, they're both about really how you interact with the team and to what degree you you you're voicing your thoughts, you're um, making sure that other members of the team are aware of their roles. Is that's the kind of thing, isn't it? Which is 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 that that's some of the stuff that comes across in in the ALS training. How much do you think, and, and how critical you want to be is entirely up to you, but how much do you think something like the ALS training prepares you for that kind of scenario? Well, uh, at risk of being controversial, I, I mean, I was teaching on a faculty yesterday, our very first, uh, there's a new course that's introduced uh, some of the team aspects and some of that work about uh, crisis resource management is in is in the new course, and there's a added element in the in the Kalikaris simulations about using Simon Cooper's team tool, which has been adapted for use in ALS. Um, for me, it's a good thing to bring in. I think it's there. I, I think ALS has in in its entirety. I did my ALS course in August of 1993, and th- in all the years that I've been involved with it since it's always talked about team leadership the mm. failure I think and and again you know I, I'm a member of the resuscitation council I feel able to talk about it um, as I'm not saying anything I haven't uh, voiced elsewhere is that the failure is that the in the assessment we don't assess formally the leadership skills right we assess the technical elements of the management of the resuscitation and maybe this, this, this is kind of a throwback, I, I guess, to what I said earlier on. In, is that, and I don't think anyone does that with any negative intent. Um, I think it, it's a gradual process of beginning to understand. Now, if you speak to ALS instructors, and you may have heard this said yourself, there are people who say, "Well, 
well, we've ticked all the boxes on the score sheet, but if that was my grandmother, I wouldn't want them resuscitating her. And, you know, I think that says a lot about, well, why are we passing them then? Well, because according to the assessment criteria, they meet the criteria, but we have this gut feeling that we wouldn't be confident that they would run, in a real-life situation, the arrest properly. So yesterday, during, you know, I worked with the teams all through the day, I said to the last team who I started the day with, where do you feel now about your abilities to lead a team compared to where you were this morning when we first started? This is an EALS course, by the way, so it's a one-day course. Yeah. And they all said, all six of them, we feel more confident, more able to lead, uh, we feel more positive about leadership, and none of them had any concerns about the technical side of, of, of actually ensuring that the guidelines were delivered, bearing in mind that's what we were assessing them against. They they all were comfortable with that quite early on. It was do about think, it was about think, the team. Now, do you do you think that we can teach everybody how to do it, or do you think there are some people who are just never going to be able to lead a team in that way? I think that's. I think it's a a, a case of a, ba- a balance here. We've got a. You know, there, there was a there was a, a nurse on that course yesterday who would be very unlikely to lead a cardiac arrest team in real life. Mm-hmm. But, but of course, if we think in her in her, in her thinking, I think she couldn't envisage running a full cardiac arrest from start to finish. But what nurses often do, particularly A and E nurses and ICU nurses and coronary care nurses and all those in critical care, is they might very well be able to lead it all the way through. But mm-hmm. more often than not, they lead it for the first few minutes, and when the team arrive, there's that kind of natural handover to the to the doctors and so on. Of course, we always argue the most appropriate person should be leading that. The most appropriate knowledge, skills, and experience, the person with the best situation awareness is who. I'd want to run my kind of arrest if it was me under their under their gaze, but that's and that's one of the if you like the downsides to ALS is that it isn't specific to the participant. It's a generic approach, a blanket approach to getting everyone to these to these standards. And I think while you know it, it's easy for me to pontificate and cr- criticise that, actually it it hasn't been a bad thing to do that. Uh, of course, the argument is also, well, that nurse is well-knowledgeable and so on and may be able to guide less experienced uh, medical staff who, 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 who an organisation may see fit to lead a team. I'd argue if they, if they need to be guided by a nurse, then a junior nurse or, a, or someone like that, then maybe they are not fit for purpose in the first place. It might be interesting, I think, that, you know, words perhaps once you've done your ALS course, if there could almost be a supplementary course, that you've done your ALS, now here's, I don't know, day one and a half of the ALS where we talk about crisis resource management, we talk about team management, we don't focus so much on the technical A, B, C, D, E's, which we tend to do, we, we, we try this team working approach a little more, and it would be interesting to see the difference between somebody who's been through that element of the course and somebody who hasn't, and just see their different approaches and how that affects well, the outcome. I think you've hit the nail on the head in a way. That's what that's you know that situation I described earlier. What we do with cardiac intensive care is is exactly that because mm. they do the cowls course, the cardiothoracic ALS course, yeah. and then we top it up with in situ simulation. Yeah. Uh, but that's one department. 
trying to do that throughout the entire hospital would be a massive resource issue. But yeah. it doesn't it doesn't stop us trying, and it doesn't stop us thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and I think it would be a marvelous thing. It's interesting that the newborn life support course or the resuscitation at birth course, as it was as it was where its focus is, is now developed a second level course, the Arni course. So um, that is taking that's developing, if you like, a fundamental entry level uh, resuscitation course focused on the newly born and onto a separate level and a further level uh, that's appropriate for neonatology. So that you know that model um, uh, kind of exists, or it, it it will shortly if it hasn't already been rolled out. I think those courses are finished uh, at pilot stage, and I may not be completely accurate on that. I'd I'd advise folks to to look at that if 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 they're interested and contact the resuscitation council. But the um, you know I think I think where we are moving is is very much in that direction, but I think. It, it's inevitable that we'll need to spend more time understanding the importance of of developing team leadership skills more fully. I think there's another factor as well. When we look at guidelines and when we look at guideline development and the evidence that gets put into guideline development, and we have a large number of very intelligent, very clever people who are ultimately brilliantly intentioned, and when we look at what the data from audit shows us, particularly around in-hospital resuscitation, the BRISAS study published in 1992 using uh, pre-92 guidelines, 86 guidelines probably, indicated a survival rate from in-hospital cardiac arrest of about 17%. Mm -hmm. Paper published, or due to be published shortly in resuscitation from the current National Cardiac Arrest Audit uh, Group, which I sit on the steering committee of, Shows a survival rate from in-hospital cardiac arrest uh, of 18.4%. Right. Uh, to me, that's not a staggering difference. No. It's a minor difference, mm. um, and those data are not yet risk-adjusted. So that may that may uh, may may change a little. But nevertheless, in all of the work, the phenomenal quantity of work that's been done in in that period of time, that 22 years, we've seen very little change in outcome. Mm -hmm. And the guidelines, we've, you know, we we know where we are weak. We are getting better at compression. There's no doubt. We've got devices to help us to do that, feedback devices, and uh, we, without doubt, the Vinnie Jones uh, chest compression vigor uh, video has had a massive impact on better compressions. We're using defibrillators better. We went through the whole business of switching from monophasic to biphasic defibrillation. We know that defib efficacy is much better. But we've reduced the amount of useless drugs that we give. Uh, maybe that will get a step forward even more next year when the 2015 guidelines are released. But we haven't made a significant difference to survival. That is, of course, if you accept the epidemiological methodology that demonstrates that. Yeah. Now, hidden underneath that is a big spread of data. And I think this is very interesting to me in that you see from the data that I get as a as an NCAR as, a, as, a, as an NCAR participant, I get data that shows me where my organisation is in terms of outcome for VF, outcome for non-VF arrest, and there's these beautiful dot plots, and we sit sort of between one and two standard deviations above the mean. 
Now, in order to get the mean, you've got to have people who are one to two standard deviations below the mean. Mm -hmm. What I mean, what the problem with the epidemiological approach is, it masks that there are these centres of excellence, and there's other centres who are not performing as well. I'm interested to know what is different. Now, I'm not looking to blow smoke up itself here and say, "Ah, oh, fantastic!" Because there's a number of organisations that sit above me. I want to know what they're doing that's different. Why are they achieving better outcomes than me? Because I want to be at the top two. And why do you think they are? Well, I'm just wondering what the missing link here is, Jonathan. Maybe the missing link is if we've got the technical stuff sorted out, maybe we're not optimal in terms of our non-technical management of resuscitation. I don't know. I'm not saying that's the answer, but I don't think we've looked at that in, uh, in, in rigorously and in close enough detail. And I'm just suggesting maybe that that's an area that we need to think about. And as soon as I've got this PhD of mine wrapped up, I'm intending to do some 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 uh, video ethnography work in the simulation centre to look at and dig right into how people are actually behaving. Now, this business of behaviour, it's not what we say necessarily either. It's how we say it. And I want to encompass the whole business of biosemiotics, how the individual reacts not only with other humans but with the technology that's around them, with the environment that they're in, and using very clever, very nice human skills. Mm. You know, about speaking nicely to people, not berating them, belittling them, and undermining them, being positive, helping them, and being much more collaborative and integral with what we do. And if we can understand, even if we just think about those kind of things, I think that we, we will see some improvements in outcome. And yeah. I think also the, you know, the problem with epidemiology is it does ignore these outliers, and I think we need to make more of that, of that data. Why are those centres getting such poor results? Why are those centres doing so well? Let's bring those people together to discuss it without fear. And that's a, that requires a culture change too, to be able to say, well, look, you know, because I don't know, if I, if I pulled all those centres together and said, how many of you are doing this in a useless way? How many of you are, do you feel are not, are not training people properly, are not, have not organised your, uh, 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 your resuscitation kit right? Uh, why are people not coming to training? How many people are going to say, oh, me, I'm not very good? <laughs> I don't think many will. Everyone is intending to do the best, but clearly we've got, we've got a range of outcomes. And why is that? I yeah, don't know. It's like you say, it's perhaps more to do because we're teaching the same technical issues to everybody, aren't we, through the ALS courses? And so ALS, etc., yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there must be other factors involved, and you can only put it down possibly to some of the human factors and the team interactions that go on. I know personally that if there's a on, – on a day when I work and I come across various personalities, uh, if I've got confidence in them, I'm pretty sure that these arrests are probably going to be run better than – when there's situations when I, I come up against a group of people that I don't know that that well, and, and I think that's to do with the social familiarity, isn't it, during the arrest, that they know that my tone of voice, the way I interact, um, they're familiar with that, they understand that, but if you meet a whole new team of people and you speak to somebody in slightly the wrong way, then it could be interpreted the wrong way, and then suddenly your team interaction is deteriorated as well, so th there is very much an importance about being aware as a team leader of your shortcomings because of the familiarity with the team, if that makes sense. 
I, entirely. I think I think you're exactly right. And it's a bit like you know the old analogy of using a Formula One racing pit stop team, pit crew, mm. as a as a re, as a as a representation of a cardiac arrest team. To me, they are not anything like the same thing, because those individuals work together, eat, sleep, drink, day after day after day, month after month, week after week, year after year. They have got an absolute incredible rapport. They know what each other, they don't even need to speak. They know what they're going to do. Yeah. With a resuscitation team, we gather a group of people together, and it's very unlikely that you will know all of those participants. Mm-hmm. You might know one or two. You know, and, and, and I've done it. Well, I get, and I get there, and I think, oh, there it is, brilliant. Or oh, there it is, oh, crikey. You know, this is not going to go well. And, you, you know, you don't have the time in that crisis to go through the niceties of life. I mean, of course, you introduce yourself, hello, my name is Ken, and all that stuff, and this is what my job is. But in the, in, in the pressure of the situation, it's very difficult to establish a rapport, which is where I think the role of debriefing helps with that. Not only does it enable you to dig into the event in a blame-free uh, safe way, but it also establishes, begins to establish a level of rapport, and it sows a cultural seed in those individuals. Say, hey, you know, we've we haven't done as as good as we can. We've looked at what we've done right, what what, what we haven't done so well, and I've learned from that. And I haven't been punished. I haven't been reprimanded for my inadequacies. I've actually That's, received um... support. You know that, and starting that process. And getting to grips with that, I think, would be a big step forward in developing something aiming at that kind of pit crew approach. I don't and that's very difficult, very difficult to achieve as well, isn't it? Because if, if you're anything like me, you go to an arrest situation, and if it's either a success or a failure, if it's, if it's let's call it a success, but you know, you get return of spontaneous circulation, and then you've got this patient that's tubed in front of you, the first thing that most people do is they turn their back on it and walk away and go and do their day job, you know? Yes. Um, if it's a failure, um, that also is probably one of the first things. As soon as somebody says, right, should we call it? Everybody in agreement, yes, we are. You know, you can feel this. Um, this group sigh of relief and then you know some of the nurses will stay and tidy the patient up but everybody else then just disappears and it's I, I personally would find it very hard as as group leaders to say no everybody stop don't go and do the 90 other things you've got to do what I want to do is gather together and have a debrief about that what what's your advice on making that as effective as you can realizing that we've got other things to do I think you've got to be flexible and say, look, you know, we've just done, you know, we often put this time aside if it was a major crisis, if it's something really extraordinary. Yeah. You know, say, for example, you know, somebody's found a patient hung or something like that, those kind of scenarios. Everyone makes the time. I mean, I remember there's a case that I was involved in a number of years ago. It was a child who, um, it, 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 it was brought in from a pre hospital cardiac arrest who was brought in by their father. And it turned out actually that he he kind of inadvertently didn't he he'd killed the child by by hitting him, but he didn't that wasn't the intention but and we made enormous amounts of time for us all to gather our thoughts and it wasn't but it wasn't done immediately after the event it was done later on the next day and so on and so forth and I think that we have to be flexible about the debrief I'm not for one moment saying that straight after I agree with you we've all got to go back and do the stuff we were doing before we were called away and then there's often you know particularly with the senior doctors and people like yourself who you know I, I, I don't I don't run to kind of from a, if I'm training people for example 
but if I was, I'm likely to be in an office, or you know, doing other 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 work, audit work, follow up work, and so on. I will, I will, of course, want to go back to that too. But the medics who are treating patients, it be, you won't get any buy-in from them if you say, "Hang on a minute, you've got to stand here for 20 minutes, half an hour to to, to debrief." But there's nothing wrong with saying, is there a time today when I can get in touch with you? Because I'd quite like to bring the team together at some point if we can. Mm. I've done it. I don't do it, you know, I don't necessarily practice what I love to do it. Many times I've walked away and thought, ah, I needed to, you know, I really ought to deal with that situation. And I've gone back and they've gone. Mm. And I didn't know their full name or their bleep number to call them. But other times we have done it. And I did one a few years ago, and I, I did a session with the team involved, and word got out, and we ended up seeing 43 people. Wow, okay, cool. You know, other so, people came in to see who weren't even involved to go yeah. through what had happened. People are receptive to it. I don't know. Were you in Spain a couple of weeks ago? No. No, okay. Um, it's just, uh, are you? do you know Keith Cooper, who works over at the Heart of England? I don't know him, but I know who he is. Right, because he's just, he's part of his PhD, he's doing, uh, he's been doing debriefing um, on a regular basis, and he's about to, I think he, he talked about his paper in Spain, I'm hoping to interview him in the next couple of weeks to find out his findings, but he, um, every Tuesday, um, he persuaded people to come along with the offer of free pizza, which was all less helpful, um, but every Tuesday people would come from an arrest from the previous week and we would talk about you know the, the way it was done the issues that were raised and I was pleasantly surprised by how uh, non-threatening it was and the people that would turn up that would find it valuable as well you know there was doctors there was junior nurses there were students there was whoever had been there and there were other people there as well so I think it's something people are receptive to it's just a question of addressing it in the right way and giving people the right environment to feel free to be const constructively critical of of one another if that doesn't come across in the wrong way. Yeah, it sounds to me as though, I mean, I'm aware of um, the research that Keith's doing and that sounds to me like a very good a very good method to enable that to happen. Is it a kind of drop-in session, is it? Yeah, very much yeah, so. Really he good. Call, call really it Puck and pizza, it was called, which was brilliant because that phrase got around as well. And um, I must admit, the pizza got me there many, many times. But it was <laughs> always a very useful session, and that you know, I'd be interested to see. But what how long did it last for? Uh, a few months. Um, I mean, uh, each session. Oh, each session would probably you'd probably be there. Sometimes it was half an hour. Sometimes it was three quarters of an hour. But what he would do, he would try and get a couple of um, arrests from the previous week. He would invite people come along from those arrests and often you might only get one or two people from each arrest sometimes you get nobody but more often than not somebody would turn up yeah. and he would break it down into some of the things he talked about was the effectiveness of the CPR um, the hands-off time and uh, we were actually very good at the hands-off time looking at the figures that he was producing um, but it, it was it was it was a great thing to do and I just I I'd love to think that it's something that uh, trusts around the country would be able to incorporate because people did find the time to turn up, you know. So yeah, yeah, and it's finding the niche, the niche time in the in the week to do that. I, I mean, that sounds an excellent initiative, and I I would fully support that kind of thing. Uh, it's a good idea, and I might take it back to my team when I return from leave ne at the end of next week. The the other thing, of course, is to, to say about this is that we. Uh, routinely record um, the oral, the audio that happens at a cardiac arrest, and that's another 
piece of work that I'm hoping to get to grips with next year is to uh, I want to do some audio ethnography. I, I've got a catalogue of um, incredulous things that folks say at cardiac arrest, and you know you've once that defibrillator switched on, it's recording, and you you hear some funny things uh, like, for example, oh, can you can you call nine nine nine? I heard this voice say, "Well, the number's two 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 two, isn't it?" Uh, no, no, I think it's nine nine nine. And you know, do you hear these kind of, you know, and it's fascinating stuff. And then, you, you know, you hear um, what happens as the team arrive. And uh, it, it, it is fascinating. Yeah. And I, I want to spend some time analysing that data in a positive way to pull out. I think we can learn so much. It's a window into their world when we're not there. When we're there, people tend to behave quite well. Yeah. And, do, you know, they do... Uh, but when we're not there, you hear some very funny things being said. Excellent. Not much swearing, it's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, it's something I'm always aware of as well, That um, and, and maybe I, I shouldn't say this, but sometimes when the arrest is becoming routine, you know when you get that period where you're just moving between cycles and you've got that rhythm going, that sometimes the you almost start to move into the banter phase, don't you? you know, you're, you're asking your mate about his shift the night before or where they went last week and and I think sometimes the conversation can be very interesting to hear. Yeah, I've heard other patients discussed while that in that while yeah. in that phase of the of the process. Uh, yeah. uh, and I think, I think one, changes, yeah, one of the things that we seem to forget as well is that we've pulled the curtains around the patient. It doesn't mean that nobody else is listening, you know, you're surrounded. No, is that right? I thought they became six foot thick lead lined walls <laughs> curtains when you, you would, come around an arrested patient. You would think so with some of the conversations I hear. Ken, I'm going to draw this to a close because we've actually been going almost 55 minutes, believe it or not. Wow. It's, it's been fascinating as ever. I've got lots of questions I wanted to ask you, but um, I, I think what we might have to do is revisit again at some point because you've said an awful lot of interesting things. Could I ask you one favour as well? If there's any research around this subject that you think is is relevant or important, you mentioned several things. You talked about To Where Is Human, you've talked about James Reason, Sidney Decker, Ensley and Smolensky you yeah. mentioned as well. If you've got any links to those things, that would be brilliant as well because I can put them in the show notes afterwards. Um, you know, don't spend hours on it, but if you could just send me a few links, that would be brilliant. And then, okay. uh, yeah, no problem. I can highlight those for other people. There's lots for us to dwell on. I think I'd be interested. How, what's your PhD around? I've, I'm sure it's, you told me last time. It's about uh, patients' experiences of recovering from cardiac arrest whilst they're uh, acutely recovering in the hospital. Oh wow! Okay, and when are you expecting to have that finished? I know that's uh, end end of uh, October. End of, and how's it going? It's arduous. Yeah, I can imagine. I can it's imagine. It's a lot of work, but it's great fun. I, I thoroughly enjoy. I've thoroughly enjoyed doing it, and the best bit was collecting the data, was talking to the patients. Right. Okay. And In how many patients have you I, had I to talk to? I interviewed sixteen. Um, I lost one tape, due, one recording due to a technical failure. So oh. I, I analysed uh, 15 patients' interviews. The average number of words each interview revealed was about 7,000. So uh, times that by 15, you get an idea of how, uh, how much uh, analytical data I had. And of course, I've, I've used the marvellous uh, grounded theory method of analysis. So uh, I developed, it was a thematic analysis uh, uh, 
using reflexive unstructured reflexive interviewing. So the patient was the center of my inquiry. It wasn't my agenda. Right, okay. So you were very much led by what they said rather than what you thought they should be saying. Exactly, yeah. And I'm hoping to cover some aspects of that research at the uh, uh, Resuscitation Council annual scientific symposium on the 6th of November in Birmingham. Oh, okay, right. Okay, well, it's nice that it's going to be in in a proper city rather than one of these made-up ones around the country. <laughs> Very good. Right, Ken, I'm going to draw it to a close. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating as always. When you do get your PhD finished, I'm going to come back and bug you about that as well, and you can tell us a, a lot more about it and the conclusions you came up with. But it's been brilliant to talk to you again, Ken, mate. Thanks for coming along. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if you, if you send me those links when you can, that would be yeah, brilliant. Will do. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Jonathan. Bye. Bye. Smack US. Chicago. June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Nixon. Flower. Weingart. May. Rohi. Malimat. Levitan. Reed. Carly. Rogers. Got the date? June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Smack US. Chicago. Book it now. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks, Ken. That was just wonderful. Really interesting to talk to him. I hope you found that interesting as well. Um, I always find it interesting to talk to Ken about things like that, and he's got a lot to say, as I've said before, and a lot of good stuff to say. He's very experienced in his field, so it's nice to be able to chat to him. He's a nice fellow, and uh, he comes back and talks to me so willingly. So thanks, Ken. I owe you one. If ever I can ever do anything for you, my friend, you know where I am. So what's happening else in my life at the moment? Well, one of the big things is that I have been asked to present at the Royal College of Nursing Emergency Care Association Conference and Exhibition, which is on Thursday the 19th and Friday the 20th of March at the Manchester Conference Centre. I presented an abstract to them uh, just before Christmas, which they've accepted. The abstract title is How a Microphone, Mobile Phone and a Tweeting Bird are Helping Me Achieve Autonomy, Mastery and Purpose. So one of the things I'm doing at the moment is actually trying to write the presentation that reflects the title. And I wanted to take this opportunity really to talk about some of the things that I'm going to be covering in this presentation because perhaps one of the things that I've never said in my podcasts and one of the reasons I'm going to say it now is because I'm having to think about it for this presentation is why do I do what I do? I run a website, I present podcasts, um, I am on Google Hangouts, I'm on Twitter an awful lot. Do I get paid to do any of these things? No, I don't. Do I get any extra work time to do any of these things? No, I don't. So why do I do it? And I've been asked this before and sometimes people look askance at me when I tell them that sometimes I'm up at five in the morning and working till nine o'clock at night on some of my days off. Um, One of the reasons I can do that is because of my wonderfully supportive wife. But why do I do it? I do it because I passionately believe that there are many, many, many nurses out there and other clinicians who have massive amounts to offer to the various professions of which they are a part 
And one of the things I've learned very quickly is that my involvement in social media has allowed me access to many of these people. People like yourself, you, you've plugged me into your ear. You're obviously somebody with a, a willingness to learn, an ambition to move forward and a desire to make a difference. And that's one of the reasons why I do all the work that I do. It's not for any extra special financial gain because none of that's coming my way, nor do I expect it to. It's so that I can network and interact with all the great people out there that are trying to make a difference to whichever health service they work in. You've only got to look at some of the people that I have networked with over the past year, and I've only been podcasting for a year. This is actually coming up very much to my first anniversary, which started with Teresa Chin back in podcast number one. And it was a wonderful way to start because she's an inspirational character herself. She's just been awarded an MBE in this New Year's honours list because of the work she's doing towards helping um, nurses advance themselves. And she's not once again doing it for any financial gain. She's doing it because she has an intrinsic motivation to do it. And that's where the autonomy, mastery and purpose title comes from, is from a book by a gentleman called Daniel Pink. Uh, which is called Drive, which is a fabulous book. And that's about the fact that we have extrinsic and intrinsic motivators. The extrinsic motivators are things like the financial reward. The intrinsic motivators are just the desire to make a difference. And I do passionately believe that by networking with all of these people, by networking with people from Australia, America, Canada, I only spoke with Ollie Poole, last night who's the Canadian respiratory therapist that um, we're working on the mechanical ventilation podcasts with. Uh, we had a long chat la last night and hopefully we'll be able to produce another couple of podcasts on the back of that. And the beauty of that is that Ollie is very knowledgeable. He's got a lovely website. Sorry, he's got a lovely YouTube site um, that he's putting a lot of teaching resources on. Um, and as I learn, and Ollie teaches then so you can learn by sticking me in your ear um, and I get to network and talk to people like that so I'm having a wonderful time I'm I'm loving every moment of it it's it's hard work it's a lot of hard work um, but it does reap its own rewards it reaps its rewards in that I get to meet a lot of fabulous people I get to interact with a lot of bright and like-minded people and it is starting to open doors. Um, it looks like that I might be getting involved with the Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference in December of this year. I've been asked to um, help out with some of the advising on social media and some of the issues that they're having in trying to slightly update their already wonderful um, conference. So it'll be interesting to see where that takes us. So I am enjoying it, but I'm having now madly to think about how I'm going to put all this into words. So maybe I just need to summarise some of the things that I've said and perhaps just uh, make it a little bit more interesting than that. I am trying to do it in a TED-like manner, the presentation. I don't want it to be an endless list of PowerPoints. Um, that's one of the worst ways to do it. I don't necessarily need a PowerPoint at all. I just need to be able to put my story across. So I thought I'd just say that as I had a bit extra time because Ken and I, um, this is a slightly shorter episode than usual. So I hope you don't mind me sharing that with you. I do believe there's some wonderful people out there and presumably you're one of them as you've uh, decided to plug me in your ear. So what else have I been up to over the last week or so? Well, I've been working hard at work, obviously, learning my emergency medicine job as well, um, which is still that massive steep learning curve. Um, and I'm greatly enjoying that. It's a challenge each and every day. 
Um, I come home feeling very tired as a consequence. What else have I been doing? I've been working hard also with the advanced clinical practitioners in trying to get at uh, ACP Educate, which is their Twitter site, up and running and off the ground. And it's already got a thriving following. I think we were up to 250 last time I looked, which is just fantastic. They're a fabulous group of people that I've moved alongside. People like Martin Horton, Rob Fenwick, uh, Joanna Fellows. Um, there's... Um, Obviously, my boss, Gary Swan. There's Pete Chesham, who's one of the leads. Tanya Kershaw, um, Sheila Pantrini, just a name but a few. But they're all wonderful, wonderful people. They are such a good team. Um, and they're motivated and enthusiastic, which is why they're doing what they're doing. We've been having Google Hangouts, which are hosted from my website on the Hangouts page. If you wanted to go to www.criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk and go to the Hangout page, there is the recordings of the ones we've done. If you can join us, um, not this Thursday, um, but the following Thursday, so when that would be the 12th, that would be the 19th of February, we are going to be talking to hopefully uh, Dr. Ron Daniels about sepsis. Um, he's a very important person in the world of uh, the sepsis protocols, sepsis 6, etc. So you can join us at 8 o'clock on my website go to that page and we'll be streaming it live from there and you can tweet questions to us if you wish again that's another project that's growing and growing really really well so i'm going to stop there i'll leave it at that probably said enough thanks for listening again lots of episodes coming up i've had lots of chats with various interesting people i hope you're still enjoying it and i hope you're going to stay with me and perhaps send me your opinions one way or another it'd be lovely to hear from you okay bye bye